0: My name is Sylvia, and I'm very happy that you're here. Welcome, and we. Uh, uh, my my colleagues asked me uh, just before we come in, well, should we go at eight or should we go at eight fifteen? We've certainly all heard those instructions a lot, and I and I said tonight, as I always said, I love to sit there because it's tremendously exciting to me. I look around. I say, oh, there's that one, there's that one, there's that one. And I get all excited more than even I was in advance of coming. So I'm thrilled that you're here, and I'm thrilled that I'm here. And welcome to Spirit Rock. These are my colleagues, Mark Coleman and Heather Martin and uh, Donald Rothberg. And uh, uh, we are thrilled to be here. We're, uh, this is the first time that this particular team has come together as the Meta team, so we're really pleased and looking forward to doing this together. And uh, I'll teach tonight, and uh, so that you've heard everybody's voice uh, and they're not just sitting here, I'm going to pass this microphone around so they can each say hello to you, and then they'll pass it back to me, and then you'll hear them at much greater length during the retreat.
1: Good evening. It's also very nice to be here. My name is Mark Coleman. And um, as you see, I'm uh, doing a slightly different practice. I brought my bed in here. Um, (laughs) I'll try not to fall asleep during the meditations, but I uh, have a pretty uh, bad back injury at the moment. So I will be... um, embodying the spirit of matter as I take care of myself on my back by lying down. And if anybody else feels like they have injuries or it's not suitable for them to be sitting up either on a, on a, on a cushion or on a chair, please feel also to really respect your body and take care of your body. And um, so we do everything on this retreat as a, as a heartfelt expression of loving-kindness. So I'm very happy to be here and I look forward to seeing more of you from an interesting angle. (laughs) And Heather?
2: Good evening. Very nice to be here. Can you hear me? Is this working? Okay. I'm a visitor in that um, I don't come here so often, and I've been looking around too, and I haven't been saying, oh, there's that one and there's that one. (laughs) It's like, who do I know here? Mm -hmm. So I live uh, in British Columbia, off the coast a little bit from Vancouver, and come here from time to time, but uh, it's such a treat to come here. And I just came today actually from IMS. Some of you know where that is in Massachusetts, and it's an intense um new year's eve retreat was just there and it's so different in that it's very cold and everything's white and snowy and i left the retreat just before it actually finished so it was a very what can i say sort of um inward and then i come to california and everyone's out and about on bicycles and t-shirts it's it's just like a, a new realm i'm really delighted to be here and i really do look forward to connecting with you and Making friends and sharing this lovely practice together. Hope you have a lovely time. Thank you.
3: Again, my name is Donald Rothberg, and I'm um, I am pleased to see um, quite a number of friends and co practitioners and people I've been in various states of silence and yapping with, and um, even though it's, um, people are walking around sometimes in t-shirts and more active, it's also, um, it, is a, it is a quiet time of year. It's also th- this wonderful time to go more deeply into ourselves, into our hearts. I like to think of this winter time, really, in, in, in the indigenous people's this was the time of ceremonies and going deeper. And I love to invite all of us to that kind of um, slowing down and opening the heart, seeing what's there, and doing it together with the uh, support for each other. And so I want to um, invite us to have that perspective and to uh, really enjoy this uh, beautiful practice of. Um, Touching the heart, opening the heart, being present to our hearts in um, in ways that take us more into our hearts and also more into the world. So, thank you.
0: So that's a little bit about who we are, and uh, I would love it if uh, we could, all of us, the four of us, and you see something about who all of you are. How many people have never been to Spirit Rock before? Oh, that's exciting. Welcome. That's great. Uh, How many people um, have never been to a metta retreat before? Oh, also great, wonderful. You know, there is no wrong answer, you know, it's going to be great whatever. How many people live in California? How many people don't? Oh, then welcome to California. How many people have done many meta retreats before? A few meta retreats before? One meta retreat before? How many people would say, I've done a lot of mindfulness retreats before? How many people would say, I've done a modest amount of mindfulness retreats? How many people would say, I've never done a mindfulness retreat before? Great. How many people would say, I've never done a retreat before? Great. Okay. So that's who we are. We are everybody. (laughs) This is fine. One of the great things about uh, practice in this tradition Is that we don't have advanced classes. Everybody is always doing the same thing. It's quite simple instructions and quite simple. uh, It's actually it's um, they are easy instructions to understand and not so simple to do. This practice of continually paying attention to the moment and being present to it. What I'd like to invite you to do. For just a few moments now is to actually look around at each other during the course of a retreat it's usually um, um, retreat practice not to so much look at people exactly, you kind of avert the eyes a little bit, you give people their special space so before we do that gives people a special space I'd like you to look around at people and actually look at them and I would like as you look at them you could actually smile too, great <laughs> Uh, Buddhist smile, uh, look at them and I would like for your look to say I hope you have a wonderful retreat may this retreat be good you, there's, somebody in the way back, too. So there's somebody in the way back you have to look around to make sure that the way back is good. also if you're in the way way back move yourself so you're not so way so everybody is sort of in a place where everybody else can see them Look around and make sure that your look means, I hope you have a wonderful retreat. May you be well. May this go well for you. May this turn out to be what you expected, better than you expected. I'll stop talking for a minute so you can actually do that for a minute without my saying. Just look goodwill at people. All right. This, by the way, I think is a a mini version of what we'll be doing all week. It's a mini version of what it would be wonderful if the whole world was doing all the time, looking goodwill at each other and feeling goodwill at each other. I wonder if you wished yourself well, too, while you were doing that. If you forgot to wish yourself well, take a minute now, or a half a minute, and think the same good thoughts for yourself that you thought for other people. May this go really well for me, may I have a great week. May I thrive, may my body feel good, may my mind feel good, may I feel contented and happy. I think sometimes we should call this blessing practice rather than meta practice. All those phrases that begin with may I are really blessings. May I and may you. You know, when I thought about just now when we were blessing ourselves and other people, may you have a good week, may this go well, and especially ourselves, may it go well for us. I remembered... Um, a story that I heard from my friend Sharon, who was my metta teacher. My friend Sharon Salzberg taught me metta almost 20 years ago now and told me the story that she learned from Upandita in in Burma. And she remembered arriving at the retreat center and having an interview with him and him asking her this question. He said, "Um, how do you think you're going to do with this practice? And uh, she'd been practicing mindfulness a lot, enough, in fact, to be teaching mindfulness. So here's an interesting question. He said, how do you think you're going to do at this practice? And she thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is probably a trick question. I don't want to, you know, look too arrogant. On the other hand, I don't want to look too unsure of myself. So what should I say? So she said, I don't know. Maybe I'll be all right. Maybe I won't be all right. And he said, no, no, no. He said, don't think that. Think to yourself it's going to be great. I'm going to do wonderfully. And I thought to myself, it was such a good answer, because I think that that amount of confidence, first of all, I think it's a wise answer. Why not? I think it's the most natural thing to wish well for yourself. It's a normal thing. It's not like asking people to do something that's out of the range of human consciousness. I think there's nothing that we want more than to be well in our minds, in our bodies, and contented. And also to have that kind of confidence that inspires practice. I have loved that answer, always. I'm thinking about uh, the Buddha having said something like that as well, that um, sometimes people, when we begin this practice in a formal way, and uh, invite people to wish themselves well, particularly, there are often questions that people have about their own sense of uh, maybe not being worthy of that much blessing, that much sort of interest in yourself and wishing that yourself be well. And the wonderful answer that the Buddha is said to have given about that, where he said, if you search the whole world over, you will find no one more worthy of your well-wishing than yourself, And when I first heard that, I thought, well, that's a really lovely thing to say. And I've come to really appreciate in the years since I've said it and thought about it, that it's more than lovely. It's actually very wise. From one point of view, it makes sense to wish well for yourself because as a conduit for being able to wish well for other people to the degree that one is open to one's own self and learn to really understand and forgive and make space for everything that's true about oneself, one is that much more set up to be able to do that for other people, so it's very wise. And the other part of it that I, I, that I began to get after many more years is that the, the other half of the phrase, there's no one more worthy in this whole world than you of your well wishes, is there's no one less worthy either. That that's the other half of it, that human beings, each of them, because they're human beings, challenged in the world, in some way making their way through their karmic patterning, trying as hard as they can to live contentedly in an in inevitably challenged life. There's no one that isn't worthy of well-wishing, out of wisdom, out of compassion. It's not about worthiness. It's about um, really the liberation of the mind that's contented enough to rest in benevolence, to not judge and say, this is worthy, this is not worthy. So this is a very good practice. It's not just good for ourselves or good for other people. It's good for the whole world. That was another thing that I remember hearing from my friend and teacher, Sharon, who said, I think this is the prayer for the world. You think about these wishes that we'll make during the week, and we'll call them metta wishes. May your body be well, may your mind be happy. There isn't anything parochial about that. It's not a Buddhist wish. It's a wish-wish. And there isn't anything particularly limiting about it it could be the prayer of the world I think it is the basic prayer of every spiritual lineage we say it in different words in different lineages but may I be well, may you be well peace be with you is the beginning and end of so many liturgies I think that's really what we all want peace with us and also with you So this is a week in which we can practice making those kinds of wishes and discovering that in the middle of wishing is the safest refuge, is the place of peace, is the place that the mind is the least turmoiled. In the middle of wishing the heart is not in contention, that the heart can't be mad at anything and at the same time wishing. That would be like driving your car forward and backwards at the same time. It doesn't work. That wishing brings us forward and closer to ourselves or to other people. Look around at other people and wish for a minute again. You see, this time they look a little bit more familiar to you. You already saw them the first time. And you wished. And Once you wished and smiled and they wished and smiled back, they got to look less unfamiliar. I think there's something about that heart moving out in the direction of someone that adopts us or them to us makes them family. I think that's what we're practicing here. We're practicing discovering the pleasure of the heart, not in contention with anyone or anything It's not a quiescent heart, it's actually an engaged heart. This is a very engaged practice. The heart that's engaged in wishing well, in caring, the three modes of the heart wishing out on behalf of other people are the just goodwill wish, may you be well. The wish that comes up in, in connection with people who are in pain. May you suffer less. May your suffering soon end. The wish that comes up when we see someone or recognize that someone's in a particularly good place or having some good fortune. May your good fortune continue. It's the wish of the heart that's not caught in its own self-preoccupation. It's the wish of the heart that notices the world and engages with it. It's the wish of the heart that notices one's own self and engages with it. I forgot the name of your book, Donald. The Engaged Heart? The
3: Engaged
0: engaged Spiritual Life. My friend Donald has just sent in the final manuscript for his book that will be out next year called The Engaged Spiritual Life. I love the title um, I think that the real spiritual life is always engaged. It's the, it's, the, it's the life that's awake and alive and alive and connected to it. So take a breath. A retreat is like a laboratory, I think. We get to practice you know, when you, did you ever take a lab course in college, in chemistry or in physics or in something, where you had uh, a class where someone lectured and then you went to the lab and you did things to see if it was actually so that it, when you dropped salt into water, it did a certain thing, or when you did something in something, it did something else, and was that true? This is like a lab course in that same way that. Uh, we'll each teach and we'll say things and we'll hope to be inspiring. But actually, the teaching is just to point the mind in the direction of, oh, I could try that out and see if it works. And this is a week-long laboratory to discover that what we say, what I've already said, what we'll continue to say, that the heart that's engaged in wishing well is the heart that's most relaxed, is the heart that's happiest, You get to test that as a thesis. You might already have known from what we did with that short experiment of looking around and wishing well, that it's very pleasant to bless. It's a nice, that's a good feeling. You look at somebody and you see a person that you don't know and say, may you be well. You feel good, you actually feel it. You feel it in your whole body, not just in your physical heart space. So you get to test that out over and over again. You also get to test what I already mentioned, that it's connecting, that when you look at somebody and you wish them well, it's as if they've moved over a little closer to you, or you've held them a little closer. I sometimes think of uh, uh, well-wishing as giving people mental hugs and they come closer to you. makes me feel less isolated makes me feel more surrounded by friends. It's very relaxing. I've changed my mind a little bit over the course of meta teaching and practice. I used to say, because it's true, when you spend a week doing this kind of practice, or more, or even less, and bringing up different people to your mind and wishing them well or attempting to wish them well, that one of the things that comes up is that We have preferences in our lives, and we wish some people, when they come up in our mind, we think, oh, good. And other people, they come up in our mind, we don't think so, oh, good. And then we discover, oh, I was stuck about that, and I'd forgotten that I was stuck about that. And I don't need to be stuck about that. I'll feel better if I'm not stuck about that. So I used to think about talking about meta practice, and especially on retreat practice, as taking your heart to the laundry um, I decided I'm going to change that though it used to say taking your heart to the laundry. I've decided what I really like to call it is keeping the heart hospitable I don't actually forget who I fancy more than other people and I think though what really is important to me is to have my heart be as open as it can be, without forgetting that it has preferences. I don't forget who I like more or who I disagree with, but I try to remember that I will feel good that regardless of what my judgments or thoughts are about anyone or anything, that I will feel better if I don't become in contention with it. I can have any thought I want and not have ill will. And really what this is, is not having ill will. If we're taking the heart to the laundry about anything, it's about washing out the ill will from it. And also another way to say that is keeping the heart forgiving. Keeping people, keeping the heart forgiving. Just as in mindfulness practice, in opening to every moment, we're forgiving every moment for being exactly what it is. In meta practice we're forgiving people for being whatever they are. Someone gave me a Christmas present of a little box of chocolates. There's apparently a chocolate company, it's nearby here, that uh, has little boxes of chocolates and they have names on them, like the Zen teas, you know, and it says relaxing or calm. These are uh, chocolates and I, I meant to bring my chocolate today, I, I forgot to bring it tonight, I'll bring it tomorrow. But it says, forgiving, forgiving, forgiveness chocolate. And it says, good for the metabolism. So I think it's good for the metabolism. And this is a laboratory to prove it. A hospitable heart feels good. One of the meta chants that I particularly like begins with the line, may I be free of enmity and danger. I love that. In the very beginning, I thought it meant, may I be free of anybody having enmity towards me and my therefore being in danger. May I be free of having anyone come after me in thought or in actuality. Actually, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, by the way, but it's much more important to me to think, may I be free of enmity and the danger that would befall me, that does befall me, any time that enmity takes hold in my heart and distances me from anyone or anything. It's interesting to think about even that misunderstanding about may I be free of danger coming after me from the outside. The Buddha actually taught metta, or so it said, to monks who he was sending out to do solitary practice in jungles. The legend about it is that they were afraid to go out in jungles where there were tigers or scorpions or whatever other frightening things happened in the night. And so he taught them metta as a, um, an amulet, really, to ward off all kinds of danger. And those were you know, actual dangers, so there's a, there, when I began my metta practice, the first thing that my teacher had me do was memorize the benefits of metta, which was were all forms of protection. You'll be safe if you practice metta. Actually, I want to tell you a story in a minute about how she told me to work with this group of 11 benefits. But I want to tell you the 11 benefits. And I want you to think about these 11 benefits as if you uh, heard them as an ad on TV, send away for 30 days for these pills and take them. Send 39.95. money back. If it doesn't work, it will do the following for you. This is what metta will do for you. People who practice metta, sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. So would you send away (laughs) for that? So say it with me back. People who practice metta metta. sleep peacefully. Wake peacefully. Wake peacefully. Dream peaceful dreams. Dream peaceful dreams. People,
2: love
0: them. People love, them. love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their, faces are clear. Their, minds, are Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. They die unconfused. And when they die, die, their their rebirth is in heavenly realms. It's good, isn't it? So don't you feel good actually from saying it? I love that. I went back to my room. My teacher said, memorize that list. I went back. I sat down with that list in front of me, which you will get to have tonight. I think as you leave, the list will be outside. So I hope you take it back into your room with you put it down in front of you, and say it to yourself again and again and again. First of all, because it's exciting as anything to think it's going to do it for you. One more time. This time, think to yourself, suppose I could choose only one of these benefits. Which one is my favorite one? You'll probably know it because your body will really like it when you say it. Okay. People who practice metta. People who practice metta. Sleep peacefully, Sleep peacefully. Wake, peacefully. Wake, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. Dream peaceful dreams. People,
3: love
0: them. People love, them. love them, angels love them, angels will protect, them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and and them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their, are clear. their, minds, are their minds are serene, they die unconfused. And when they die, die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. realms. Okay. You know which one you like the best? Okay. Now I'm going to say them again. And you put up your hand for your one, okay? (laughs) No changing. (laughs) Even if you're the only one with that one, okay? Here we go. You can look, though, and see what everybody wants. People who practice metta. You have to also do, and I'll do (laughs) it. People who practice metta. Sleep peacefully. Wake peacefully. Dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused, and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. Okay, we got everyone covered. Everybody wants at least one of those things. So all together, we're in good shape. I want to tell you about something about them. I realized when I was thinking about them today, they're all the same, aren't they? You'll be all right. It'll be good. You'll be safe you'll feel okay. All the things that we want, to lie down in peace, to wake up in peace, to not be afraid, to be clear-minded, to have people love us, to feel safe and protected, to know that we live this life in such a way that whatever comes after it is just fine. I think they're all permutations of wisdom. I think they're all permutations of the wisdom that sees clearly that when the mind rests in its own benevolent potential, the way it is naturally, that we're quite safe and well-loved and we sleep peacefully and wake peacefully and feel at ease in our lives. I don't know that poisons and weapons and fire won't harm me. I have not tested that. I like to think of it as a very exciting metaphor from that means something like, I'm really safe, that nothing can really harm me. I don't know about this physical body, but that nothing can harm the fundamental sense of benevolence that I think is our birthright. One of the really wonderful things about meta, about thinking about it, knowing about it, teaching it, is that it isn't a skill that we have to learn as if uh, it wasn't already there. I mean some people have more of an aptitude to tap dance or play the violin. or learn some skill that not everybody can do. But actually, to come to understand through our own laboratory experiment, that when our minds are clear, our hearts are kind. That's just the way it is for human beings. We're really not cultivating something new, we're allowing something that's innate for us to manifest itself. Makes me feel very good about it. So, you know, we all raise our hands for different things, and I'm sure they all mean the same thing. And at this point, I'm raising my hand, and probably I've raised it for other things. Recently, I've been raising it around die unconfused, because I'd actually like to live unconfused. And I think if I lived unconfused, then my heart would be able to manifest itself in those ways of kindliness that would lead to my happiness more and more. And I'd feel engaged in the world, and I'd feel connected to it, and I'd feel alive. If I were unconfused, I would remember all the time that benevolence feels better than anything else, That contention really is suffering. The second noble truth, and I know that some people are new to practice and new to Buddhism and new to Dharma, so in the course of the week you'll probably hear one of us talk about the Buddha's own enlightenment experience and his um, encapsulating in four simple phrases really, in four simple statements, the truth that life is difficult. It's all the time challenging for everyone. Everyone has different challenges and different circumstances, but we all have the challenge of needing to adapt to whatever situation is facing us now. A very old, uh, literally old friend of mine wrote me a letter from the assisted living facility that she's now at and said, I really want you to come and teach meditation here um, I need it. She said, I think everybody needs it. She said, but I really need it. I'm having trouble adjusting to my new circumstance. And I was certainly very touched by it. And of course I went. But I thought to myself about that particular phrase, I'm having trouble adjusting to my new circumstance. It's a lifelong phrase for everybody. The whole—it's so From the beginning. It's not just when you're old, you know. I remember having to struggle with some of my grandchildren going to preschool. They're having trouble adjusting to their new circumstance. Then they have to adjust to a regular school, and then they have to really adjust to suddenly being an adolescent. What am I going to do with this body? And then having to adjust to at this and this and this and this, and the whole of life is adjusting to the new circumstance. And as the body changes, and as the outside circumstances of life change, and the whole of life is. Uh, Accommodating to it, say, Oh, okay, that's what's happening now. Didn't see that coming, or I did see that coming, or how could I have seen that coming? Or even I saw it coming, I didn't think it would be like this. So it's always adjusting. And how to adjust gracefully and say, Okay. It's not necessarily liking it, it's making a space for it. It's contention that's suffering. It's not not liking, it's just contention. Say, I don't like this, but it's what I've got. That's a really important point. If I was unconfused, I would remember that benevolence is the best feeling, that contention is suffering. By the way, the the, the first of those noble truths, which I started to say, life is challenging, it gets to be suffering when we fight with what we can't change, when the heart is in contention, when there is an, Intractable need in the mind for circumstances to be different. Sometimes we'd like them to be. When the mind cannot reconcile themselves, itself to the fact that they can't be, is when we suffer. The third noble truth is that it's possible to condition a heart that opens to circumstances and that peace is possible. And the fourth noble truth is the path to peace. And we'll talk about it, I'm sure, one or another of us in various ways throughout the week the particular piece of the path that we'll be working with we'll be working with all of them but the path the particular path piece that has to do with the repetition of intentions of goodwill is the path piece of right concentration and that is the piece that particularly relates to the mind calming down and seeing clearly and allowing the good heart to manifest itself But really, the whole of the path is involved. I was thinking a little bit about when we looked around at each other and everyone smiled at each other and wished each other well. Even if we don't know each other here, there's a kind of, um, I'm sure there's a sense since everybody has come to this Buddhist retreat at a Buddhist retreat center, that everybody looks around and says, well, at least all these folks are just like me. So I don't have to know them. I know that they share my values or they have my same thoughts. And so I can smile at them easily. Sometimes I think to myself, it's harder. What if I were to say, you know, I have secret knowledge that everybody in this room Voted differently from you in the last election, <laughs> or half the people did, and half the people didn't. And you looked around, you thought, "Uh-oh, are these the people that I should wish, or are those the people that I should wish? <laughs> should I wish here or wish there?" And how to somehow recognize that in life, the whole of the world is populated with what we want and what we don't want, and I have to have a heart that meets what we want and what we don't want and who we want and who we don't want with its own composed goodwill, maintaining its own safety. It's very odd that the heart, which is so capable of loving, retracts itself when it gets frightened, Uh uh-oh, or it, it holds out on whole loving. And then people will say, I wish well for all beings, but not so-and-so.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: On account of that, I had a grudge once for ten years, and, uh, and one of my really dearest friends and, and Dharma buddies and I were talking about it, and uh, we were talking about metta, and she said, do you have anybody that you haven't forgiven in your heart? And I said, well, actually just one person. And even because I certainly didn't want to talk bad about this person, I didn't tell people a lot about that. But since this person was my very, very close friend, I told the circumstances of why some 10 years previously I'd been so offended. And I got all finished. She said, you know, if there's only one person standing between you and a heart of total benevolence, do you think you could get over that? You know. <laughs> And, so, you know, and I tell it to you because it's hard to get over it. Somebody wounds you. We'll talk about that this week. It's not that easy. And say, okay, I'd like to do it. Hypothetically, it's a good idea. But actually, a uniformly benevolent heart based on wisdom. Uh, some years ago, in a very good teaching from a woman named Jo who comes to uh, Wednesday morning class um, quite regularly, who for all her working years was a flight attendant. And I made a kind of a blanket sweeping statement, I was talking about uh, meta practice and I said, you know it's hard not to have uh, a preference one way or another, that um, there are, it's just hard to keep the mind neutral. When you look at somebody, just immediately by the way they look, either like them or like, oh. Or there's something about them, or the way they walk, or the way they stand, or the way they eat, or the, the mind is always busy saying good, not good, good, not good, and putting people in categories. I said it's hard to really see neutral, and uh, Joe said no, I'm, you know it's not. I, I have an example where I think that's not so hard. She said uh, I'm a flight attendant, and uh, when. Uh, uh, I'm giving the instructions at the beginning of a flight and I'm telling people to fasten their seatbelt. I look at at 400 people and they're all different and I don't know any of them. said, so I want them all to fasten their seatbelt, the same. I don't want some to get there more safely than others. I want everybody to get there the same safely. And I thought about that. I love that as a as an image because in a sense... When you fly from here to there, you want to do that trip and get there safely. And we are all in our lives flying from here to there. We took off at some day, at some point, in some place on the planet, all of us probably on different days in different places, and we're going to land the end of our flight somewhere else. And all of us would like a a not bumpy ride. And all of us are going to have bumpy rides. If we look around and say, everybody is having a bumpy ride... And may they get there safely. You know the good feeling that you have if you get up I hope I assume you have you get up in a plane on a long, long flight, especially if it's at night, and you walk from the front of the plane to the back to go to the toilet and you see people in all stages of uncomfortable lying <laughs> there wrapped fruitlessly in, in blankets, trying to make themselves comfortable. And your heart goes out to them. Because you know how uncomfortable they all are, just the same as you're uncomfortable. And it's that same sort of, you don't have to know them to know that it's a hard circumstance. I, I think a lot about that being a small metaphor for the whole of life. You look at anybody and you say, this life is a hard circumstance. My grandfather, who I like to quote a lot, who's uh, uh, been dead now a long time, but lived to nearly a hundred. He had a phrase that he used to say when he was confronted uh, with some really difficult piece of news that he would have to assimilate and he could see he was upset about it. (sighs) Disappointing news, frightening news, saddening news. And he'd take a very long breath like this. (sighs) And he'd say, it's really hard to be a person. I've translated from the Yiddish, but it's really hard to be a person. And what I think he meant is it's hard to be a person whose heart stays good, who doesn't get angry, who doesn't become embittered, who doesn't give up on life, who wants to stay in it, who isn't discouraged beyond words about it. It's really hard to be a person. So there are two aspects of this learning that we're going to do together there are two parts of it we're habituating the mind to kindness and we're habituating it through two paths one of them is the learning by experience we'll suggest to you a technique the technique essentially is to learn some phrases of well wishing and to say them over and over and over again and we hope that you'll do that and we hope that what what our experience is, what I think one's experience is, if the mind continues to well wish, is that one discovers that this is the path that leads to happiness. When the mind is filled with kind thoughts, the mind becomes happy. It's a laboratory. Mind is filled with unkind thoughts, it becomes unhappy. The body becomes tense and the mind becomes unhappy. There's a line in the Dhammapada, then in the, in the first verses of the Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha. Here, I'll read it to you. Mind is the forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with an angry mind, suffering follows just as the wheel follows the hoof of an ox pulling a cart. Mind is a forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with a serene mind, happiness follows as surely as one's shadow. So we'll do an experiment in that. We'll fill the mind with wholesome wishes and we'll discover, I think we will, I trust it that the mind becomes happy, the body becomes relaxed. And because the mind gets habituated to ways of thinking, that the more we practice it, the more the mind becomes habituated. I remember one of the first, uh, I I remember being so struck by uh, uh, an instruction from Sharon in my very first days of practice. She said, if you get up in the night, to go to the bathroom in the night. Don't stop saying the phrases. From the time you wake up, go, come back. I thought, she's really serious. She really means all the time. And she really meant all the time. So I tell it to you because really, all the time, all the time, from the moment you wake up, whenever, to when you're sleeping, filling the mind with wishes of goodwill. So part of it is habituating the mind through just through practice and discovering how good it makes you feel the other part of metta practice which really is deepening the wisdom component of the mind is the fact that the repetition of phrases that level makes a certain level of concentration in the mind that level of concentration really dispels all of the confusing energies that fill the mind Tomorrow night, Donald will talk about the confusing energies that are part of the natural mind's habit repertory, the, the confusing energies that come up in response to challenging, startling experiences, and that the mind that's concentrated tends to be the evaporator of confusing energies, an amazing thing. you know. I, I don't think we have necessarily a one-track mind. I mean, I can drive my car and sing to myself at the same time. I can drive my car and sometimes plan a talk at the same time. Um, I can cook and be thinking a story in my mind. But I can't advance two storylines at the same time. There are habitual actions that my body knows how to do well, that it can continue to do while a storyline is advancing itself. But only one storyline can advance itself. And if the storyline that's advancing itself is, may I be well, may you be well, may all beings be well, or some permutation of that, then any other storyline, this isn't working, that went wrong, he shouldn't have done this to me, I should have said, those storylines can't advance. If they can't advance, they fall out of the mind. If they fall out of the mind, they disappear. When we notice that they've disappeared, we get to see right firsthand as an experiment that they were just a thought. They're not in reality holding the mind hostage. They hold the mind hostage, or they feel like they hold the mind hostage because the mind has chosen them to limit itself and can let them go. But I could tell you that, and here's this whole week to practice lear- discovering that. So we see th- really, clearly those, those, those uh, truths that I mentioned before, that the mind gets caught in wishing things were otherwise and being in contention with the moment. If only this lunch were different. I don't like cauliflower, They have too much cauliflower here. If this lunch were different, I could eat more of it, I'd feel more satisfied, and then I could really wish well. Uh, All of the ways that the mind says, I would be all right if, but not now, because of this or this or this. And discovering that the mind can say, you know what? It isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. I'm all right. It's like this. Understanding that suffering is the mind in contention. Understanding that things are what they are for myriad causes, way beyond what we can figure out. Sometimes we think if I hadn't have done that, then this would be all right. Who knows? So many things impinge on every moment. Actually the Buddha said that karma was one of the six imponderables. You couldn't even imagine the numbers of the numbers of causes that Go into any particular moment being what it is, any particular person being what it is. To just say, this is the result of causes. The only thing I can do now is respond to this moment. That's where I have some freedom. I can't make it different, but I can make my response different. My mind is clear and not confused then I get to see that things pass. I really get to learn that. And the Buddha really taught that seeing impermanence is one of the most immediately freeing insights. When things are difficult, they frighten us to the degree that we know that they're not going to be here forever. They frighten us less. One of my friends who I visited today on my way here has a, quite a serious illness and the upshot of her illness, the outcome of it is not so clear. And uh, she needs to spend a lot of time in bed because she has a lot of pain. And in huge letters, uh, really signs, her partner has put up on the wall across from the bed, this too shall pass. She said, I get up in the night and I look at it and I feel better. I feel reassured. And even if she does not survive this illness, that will also be a form of this too shall pass. This degree of discomfort will not happen forever. To the degree that we know that things will pass, to that degree, at least in my experience, Am I unwilling to mortgage any day of my life or moment of my life to ill will, to being mad? I I get mad, I get grumpy. I like it if I discover that I am spending time telling myself a story of how beleaguered I am because then I can stop doing it, and realizing I'm missing this moment. Quite a dramatic thing happened the other day. I was uh, flying home from um, uh, spending a, almost a month in France, and uh, it was a, for the, the plane was completely full. Uh, the seats are quite close together. Um, There are a number of people sitting just around me who didn't get seats they wanted and weren't sitting with their person and were irritable to begin with because at the beginning of the 12-hour flight that they weren't sitting in the right place and we had 12 hours to fly. And then the plane taxied out on the runway and there was so much fog it didn't take off for an hour. And they had an inordinate number of very small children shrieking at the top of their... (laughs) for that whole hour of sitting because they have to sit on their parents' lap, strapped in rather, and you know any minute we're going to inch forward, inch forward there's a lot of shrieking, there were a lot of people looking very irritable a lot of people I assume feeling very irritable uh, in the middle uh, and, and in fact truth to tell it had been a long day and the relationship between myself and my husband whom I love more than anyone in the world was in a strained place. We had offended each other. Uh, a man took ill on the flight and died. An old man with very serious uh, heart trouble. Uh, and it happens sometimes that, that, that way. And nobody saw it. Very few people saw it. The crew was amazing about that. I know about it because my husband is a physician, so he was one of the people who, when the pilot came on and said, if there's any physician, please come in the front. So I heard about it afterwards. Uh, But everybody knew that something was not good. First of all, the pilot came on and said, if anyone is a physician. Then if you were watching the little map, you see the plane, which has just passed over Newfoundland, is now turning around and going back in the direction of Halifax, so that looks not good. And uh, and then the plane turned around again and went back and ultimately landed in Edmonton to refuel because they didn't have enough to go to San Francisco. So my sense was that everybody figured out what had happened. And I don't know if I imagined that everybody was more quiet for the rest of the flight and that there was less kind of fidgeting going around. Or maybe it was just me who was more quiet for the rest of the flight with less fidgeting. Because everybody, I'm sure, understood that for all of us, you don't know whether this is your last day in the world. And how did I want to be? And did I want to be with my most favorite person in the whole world saying, you didn't understand me and you didn't understand me? Is that worth it for a minute? Even with my not most favorite person in the world? is it worth it for a minute? Any minute, the life is over. And, see, and, and in fact, I looked and I thought, you know, if people thought about this, this whole plane is like a city. It's like a 400 people in it. People get born and people die. Somebody, sometimes people get born on planes as well. I know somebody who took off in Los Angeles a month before her due date and had a baby before she landed in San Francisco. It was an amazing experience. She felt regular when she got on the plane in Los Angeles, had the baby before she landed. People get born, people die. We don't think about it, except if you're in a very close quarters and you suddenly get it, you think this is like the world. In the course of this flight, in the plane and out of the plane, people are getting born and people are dying. It is a time-limited thing, this life. I think that's the lesson. How do I want to spend any minute of it? Do I want to be in contention? Do I want to mortgage one minute of it by resenting, by embitterment? I do not. I do, that's why I told you the story. But I want to do it less and less. I want to catch myself sooner. I want to recognize this is not who I want to be now. This is not wise. I want to tell you, just before we end, I want to tell you something about the choosing of phrases and we'll, have, and we'll sit just for a few moments. When I began my practice my teacher said to me, first of all she said, go learn these um, um, benefits of metta. And I went and I sat in my room and I said them and I felt great. And then I said them again and I felt great and I said them again and again and again. I memorized them. And I felt very excited about the fact that those things might happen to me, that nothing would harm me. I loved those phrases. And I also discovered that the saying of the phrases, the very saying, made me feel great. And that was, there are two components. There are the fact that the heart is inclined towards happiness by happy, wholesome thoughts, And the mind is inclined to happiness because when it's busy saying something happy and wholesome, it's not complaining, it's not getting lost, it's not roaming around making up things to think about and chew over, it's just resting in its natural self and the clouds of confusion that often fill it are dispelled. So there's the happiness of the non-confused mind simply by the repetition. Probably it would happen by repeating something all over and over and over again, not those words. I was uh, I, I, well, now i 've started the sentence i 'll have to say it <laughs> I was starting up the hill on one retreat I taught recently, maybe it was a meta retreat, and just walking up the hill, and often i 'm walking up the hill and I 'm saying my meta phrases over and over to myself, and I realized I was walking up the hill. And I was singing to myself. Often I sing the metaphrases to myself. But I was walking up the hill and I was singing, Look for the silver lining when the clouds appear in the sky. And actually, it's actually very good dharma when you think about it. So, and then I, I was, got so interested in that I sang it over and over and over again and I felt very good about it. When the mind is occupied in a wholesome, happy direction, it's not doing everything else. So uh, this book called The Way of the Pilgrim, about a Christian mystic of 100 or so years ago, more now. And the instruction from this person's practice is pray without ceasing. So this is a practice of pray without ceasing, both to incline the heart and to clear the mind. Pray without ceasing. When my teacher continued the next day to instruct me, She said, "Okay, say these four phrases." And she taught me these phrases. The phrase, the phrases were: "May I be free of danger? May I have mental happiness? May I have physical happiness? May I have ease of well-being?" She said, "Say that to yourself, over and over again." Reddy said, "Go." She didn't say, "Make up your own phrases," or she didn't say what they meant. She said, "Just say that." So I figured those are the phrases to say, and I just said them for about 10 or 15 years actually. And I love them, and I have certain songs that I sing to those particular phrases. And then as we began to teach metta to Westerners, people said, I don't like to say the word danger, or I don't know what mental happiness means, that's such an odd construction or physical happiness, why couldn't I just say health? And There were all kinds of things. And so people began to modify the phrases so that they were contemporary. Actually, they're not contemporary phrases and they're translations from another language, so maybe we could translate them differently. So some of my teachers say, um, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I be free. And some people say other things. For many years, I said, "My, may I be free of danger?" Because I had my little song, and because I liked it, and because my teacher said, "Do it," because it worked. Then a few years ago, I uh, decided that since we were saying to people, you could say, you could use more contemporary language if you wanted to that um, I should try to use more contemporary language. You'll find on the same sheet that's outside that you'll pick up when you leave with the benefits of metta that there'll be the original phrases that my teacher taught me and then there'll be three other sets of phrases. One of them is a set of phrases that I made up for myself because I really felt I couldn't say to other people, say to yourself contemporary phrases that suit you and not try to do it myself. So I changed my phrases. I'll tell you an interesting thing. I changed my phrases and I like my new phrases very much. And when I get frightened, suddenly, my old phrases start in my mind. I think they're in a lower part of the cortex or more embedded in there. They have 15 more years of saying... It doesn't matter. What matters is that you find phrases that you like and that you stay with them. So seriously, this is my instruction. Take one of these sets, make your own set, decide what you're going to say, and then forget about changing it. Just do it and pray without ceasing. Here's an instruction if you use a set of phrases that aren't these It's very good to have four phrases, I think. I see somebody has, no, everybody's got four, good. It's very good to have four because each of these four phrases has a slightly different nuance. One of them is always about safety. One of them is about the physical body and health. One of them is about the mental state and happiness. And one of them is about living somehow comfortably in the world. And really we could have one phrase, may I be well, may you be well, may all beings be well, that would cover it. But as you're practicing it actually turns out to be more interesting to mean a slightly different thing for each phrase because then as you say them to yourself you can look for a slightly different nuanced echo in your body of that particular phrase. So this would be my instruction. Either take one of these phrases, Find four phrases, long or short. Make them having to do with safety and well-being of the body and happiness of mind and a life that's comfortable. And then say them. I'd like for us just for two or three minutes to sit with kind intent of the heart. Don't trouble yourself with four phrases unless you've already done metta practice. You already have your four phrases. If you don't already have the four phrases, I would really use this time to think for yourself. May I be well, may all the people in this room be well, may all the people in the world be well, may I be well, may all the people in this room be well, may all the people in the world be well, just the simplest of things so that we spend some time just resting in the heart's own natural good intention. So we come to the end of the first night of this retreat together. I meant for us to take formal retreat precepts and refuges. I had in mind that we would do it as part of this teaching. And I ran out of time. So in one sentence, we'll do it formally in our first sit after breakfast tomorrow morning. In one sentence or two, I'll say this. That we do this practice together, we undertake this practice together for this week in the trust that an awakened mind is possible, that a loving heart is a reflection of an awakened mind, that we could have it as well. That these teachings that have been fundamental for generations and tested will work for us as they have for millennia of practitioners. And that our being together as a group will support all of us in our practice. And that we'll come together and we'll do this week in a community that supports itself by taking on collectively a vow to make this a safe community. That everyone will live in the spirit of great respect that holds everyone as precious, that doesn't harm, that stays attentive to any impulse other than a kind one, that doesn't exploit, that doesn't intrude in any way in word or deed on anyone else that everyone will practice in a spirit of dedication so that the mind stays clear and the heart can manifest in its own benevolent lovingness. We'll do that in a slightly more long form tomorrow morning after breakfast. I also want to add what we'll say at the very end of this retreat together, at the end of the week, when retrospectively we'll dedicate the merit of this retreat for the well-being of all beings everywhere. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstin at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 6, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.
3: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.